Hello and welcome to the New Persian Times, a platform created to raise awareness on all things Iran. I am your host, Andy LM, but my friends call me Ayn. My guest for the seventh episode of the podcast is Sarah Raviani, a first-generation Iranian-American human rights activist. She and her collaborative colleagues participated in the most significant legislative effort to emerge from the American diaspora who were in support of the Iranian protests in 2022 and 2023, called the Massa Act. The Massa Amini Human Rights and Security Accountability Act, also known as the Massa Act, is a bill that was first introduced to the 117th Congress in the wake of the woman life freedom protests in Iran. Its intention is to put sanctions on the leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran. The bill was reintroduced as HR 589 to the House of Representatives and as S2626 in the United States Senate in the 118th Congress. The HR 589 was considered under suspension of rules and was passed by the House floor with an overwhelming majority of the representatives voting for it. 410 representatives voted for the Massa Act, 209 Republicans and 201 Democrats. Representatives Ilan Omar, Thomas Maisie, and Cory Bush voted against the bill, and 20 representatives did not even vote. The Massa Act's Senate Companion Bill was introduced to the Senate by Senators Marco Rubio and Alex Padilla on July 27, 2023. According to the Iran International News, Senator Ben Cardin is currently holding up the Massa Act from being considered for a markup session by the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. In this episode, which was recorded November 19, 2023, just about a month after the Hamas attack on Israel, Sarah and I dove deeply into the complexities that is Iran along with an overview of the Massa Act. I do not claim to be a journalist or an activist, but simply a man trying to connect two parts of this dividing world. All commentary is strictly my personal opinion from knowledge that I've obtained and gathered and experienced throughout the time of the recording. However, I do welcome you all to join me on this journey of growth, curiosity, learning, and evolving in all dimensions. Thank you for your time, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on this conversation. It's been a while since I've I've had I've done a podcast with with a guest because it's been very heavy and turbulent emotionally and spiritually about everything going on in Iran, and it it took a toll on me personally because I it put me in the hospital in February of last year, actually. So I kind of took a break. So you're, I recorded a podcast with another guest, which I didn't release. So you're the second one. I like months apart. So I really appreciate you spending time with me today. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad to have you. And I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, so just tell me a little bit about yourself, like background, like were you born here in the States and pretty much what led you to the active activities of what brought you to where you are now? 
So I am an Iranian American. I was born here in the United States. I'm based in Dallas, Texas. And when the revolutionary uprising in Iran began in 2022, I really felt called to be the voice of the Iranian people, especially to people here in America that may not know the human rights abuses and the situation going on back home in Iran. I felt really called by the young women and the young men, especially. I'm 25, so I am very close in age with the average protester inside of Iran. And getting to know them and their stories really um, made me feel called to be their voice and to speak for them because I felt that they were not getting adequate news coverage. I felt like no one really knew their stories and I wanted to lend a hand as just the bare minimum that I could do for my brothers and sisters back home inside of Iran. So that's what led me to begin advocacy. And it started off as just something that I did to share information and to raise awareness for the people of Iran. And then it turned into something greater. And I embarked on my journey to begin legislative advocacy. And I started advocating for a piece of legislation called the Massa Act, named after Massa Amini. And we have created a you know, beautiful journey out of that piece of legislation. So that's kind of my background and where this started and how things have ended up. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you, do you do you still have family in Iran? I do. I am lucky enough to, I don't really talk about this, but I grew up in a multi-generational home. I had my grandparents here mm. at the house with me. And so I'm very, I was very close with my grandparents who lived most of their lives inside of Iran. And I have some extended family back in Iran and I have a lot of friends. So I talk to them and I have their they have the best pulse on this situation being that they are inside of Iran. But I also have a different perspective being that I am an American born and raised and have, I'm a little bit removed from the situation. So I, I have, I have a different understanding I feel than most people do, but that's something that I spoke about recently was that my grandmother, I always think about her, especially before I'm meeting with lawmakers or before I have an event to go to. I've had several events and meetings and things where beforehand, I just like my eyes fill with tears, just thinking, about my grandmother, because I'm not only fighting for the present or for the future of Iran, but I'm fighting for the past and the people that were let down in the past and people like my grandmother. And I said something along the lines of no one ever told them that the women whose feet they cut from running would give birth to daughters with wings. And Ooh, that's something I like that. It's something I stand by because it's I don't think that that was something that the current leadership inside of Iran ever anticipated. I didn't I don't think that they knew that this new generation of young men and women were going to change things so significantly and were going to bring them to their knees. So I think both inside and outside of Iran were able to um, together work collectively to actually threaten this regime in a way that I don't think that they ever expected. Yeah. Yeah. I think it came as a shock to a lot of people. I mean, I didn't anticipate the where it would end up. So it's it's a moment to feel proud to be Iranian, especially being first generation immigrant to the parents of the, of Iranian culture. I'm very much like you. I was born and raised in New York City though. So you're in you're in 
good old Texas and I'm in New York City. So, but it's the same struggle. It's the same, like when I predominantly white in schools, you feel kind of a little like a little different per se, but it's nice to know that as we get older, it's the uniqueness of what we have is, it's just more cherished, I guess, if that's the right way of saying it. But the, so with the Massa Act, did you, so were you, would you consider yourself like, were you like the, the founder of it? Were you like the, the one, the driving force behind it? Or was it like a collective thing that you met with other people? Or was that like, just like, this was your, the genesis came from your idea in terms of moving it forward? So the Massa Act, it's H.R. 589 and Senate Bill S2626, in case anyone wants to Google it really quick. But no, I am not the founder of it. It was introduced in the House by Representative Jim Banks and then in the Senate by Senator Marco Rubio and an original co-sponsor was Senator Alex Padilla. So they are the masterminds behind this piece of legislation that the Iranian American community like really rallied behind. But it was a collective group of, I would say about, I would say a small group of us that started thinking like, okay, we need to do more. We saw, or at least I'll speak for myself. I saw the revolution in Iran unfolding. And I saw the people of Iran, it was specifically when the execution spree began. I saw that people younger than me and people my age, I was 24 at the time, were being executed just for demanding basic human rights and asking for freedom. So I was sitting down and I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to help? And how am I going to make a difference? And I think I was in a a lot of us were in a unique position because I would say that Iranian Americans for the past 44 years, those of us living in the diaspora have been very, very politically aloof. We had other organizations claiming to speak for us. And there was a lot of mis and disinformation being spread about what it was that both the people inside of Iran wanted and also the diaspora. So I saw an opportunity to fill a void ultimately. And it was a group of several of us that said, what, we're going to start getting involved in advocating for this legislation. And I had no idea what that entailed. I, I had no idea what exactly I was getting myself into, but I was like, what, I need to do more. And it got to the point where I was like meeting with Senate offices and they would ask me like, how long have you been doing this? And I would be like, what do you, what do you mean? How long have I been doing this? What are you talking about? And they would be like, well, like, I would just be like, I've been doing this for like the last few months. I'm just an activist. I don't have a background in any of this, but I just got started because I was really inspired by the people of Iran. And they're like, oh my gosh, I thought you had a degree in this. We thought you were like a professional lobbyist. And I was like, no, this is really just a passion project for me to help the people back home. And so it's been very interesting to, you know, take on this whole new world because it's been a learning experience for all of us in, you know, how to mobilize, what to do, what to say, how we can help and how to ultimately progress this legislation. I, I didn't really know anything about the legislative process or how bills became laws or what that even meant prior to starting legislative advocacy. But 
that was part of also, you know, the beautiful aspect of it was that we were all as Iranian Americans, especially young Iranian Americans learning together how we were going to mobilize and what we were going to do to progress this legislation forward. Yeah, to throw yourself to the unknown, it takes a lot of courage. So definitely commend you on that. Just by looking at you, I would assume the same, like you look like you've been doing this for a long time. And it's why not lean into it? So I think if anything, that's going to help move that needle forward in the right trajectory. I think that's uh, it's for a good cause. So you mentioned the executions and the imprisons. So we just found out Tumaj got released. So again, so much, so much has happened. The time that we considered we wanted to I wanted to schedule you. And then like he gets released. We could talk about Reza Pahlavi and his family, too, because he just made like a a really good three hour appearance on Patrick Beck David on his yeah. podcast, which I recorded. So I'm going to release parts of that, too. What What are your I, I was told that when Tumaj got released, apparently he was released just to treat his injuries. Apparently, there's a lot of rumors going around already because he had posted on his official Instagram, which is what I post. And. Apparently there's talks about him like, all right, that it's it's really just released on bail just for him to treat his injuries. Maybe it's to quiet down the public. Who knows? Do you have any thoughts on that or have you heard anything? So just my opinion is that the regime in Iran has faced a lot of backlash, given that there's a lot of finger pointing with the recent Hamas attack on Israel. So I'm obviously so ecstatic that Tumaj was released, but I can't help but think that there is an ulterior motive behind it and that possibly it was because they're trying to prove to the world, hey, look, world, we're not as bad as everyone says we are. We are releasing political prisoners and look at us. We're we're the great um, government I, you, they call themselves a government can you even really call them a Absolute government they're a mafia for sure it's- yeah so i don't know who they're trying to prove it to or what they're trying to prove but bottom line is that i'm happy that he was released i just hope that he doesn't face further persecution and i wish that it were unconditional because he's released on a what i have heard is a temporary bail so i believe he will still have to face you know, whatever kind of trial or whatever they do back there inside of Iran. And so I wish it were unconditional release. And I wish that he could be truly free. I don't think that anyone is safe under that regime, because we as Iranians know what they're ultimately capable of. Yeah, agreed. In terms of like, yeah, it it was, it was sort of bittersweet seeing that news. It's like we were, I was really happy to see that. But then I showed I showed my mother and she was like, yeah, that's an old vi- that's an old photo of him. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, the government has probably got into his Instagram account and made that announcement, which now went viral. Apparently his hashtag is viral. So it's it's I agree with you in the sense where there could be an ulterior motive. I mean, they they care very much about the optics. I mean, that's what corruption does. It's, right heavy stuff. 
Yeah, it's it's hard. And that's what makes it so hard about navigating some of this stuff, especially when you're new to advocacy or you're young and you're trying to figure out exactly what is going on. Because I have based my platform on trying to translate everything, all the Farsi news language networks into English. And so being a first generation American and trying to navigate through this craziness has been like one of the biggest learning curves because you're trying to see like, okay, what's misinformation? What is the correct information? What is real? What is fake? And the regime is very good at psychological warfare ultimately Mm -hmm. to make us not only hit us against each other, but to make themselves look good and to continue spreading chaos and destruction across not only like at home, but across the entire Middle East. And then here in the States, I feel like there's so much that we have to deal with as Iranians, even though we're so far removed from Iran. So that's been one of my biggest learning curves, but it's been helpful to have people in my life that are older. Like I spoke about my grandmother earlier, my dad has been a big help. My mom, like all of these older um, Iranians that lived inside of Iran and can give firsthand experiences as to what it's actually like there and what they experienced while they lived in Iran. And I, I listen and I try to learn from them and I just try to get a good pulse. Like I said, I have some extent, extended family there. I have some friends there and I try to understand based on their perspective, what they're, what, where they're at, what they're thinking. And I try to just echo that on my platform as best as I can, because it's really hard to navigate and I'll be the first to admit that it's it's just difficult. It's very difficult. I, I even tried to trans do the translation on just the videos that I've created and I I I read at like a second grade level, not even basically first grade. And it's just it takes a whole different brain power to do that. Because our language has a lot of nuance to Farsi is very nuanced, so and it's always rapidly evolving and changing. Like certain slangs, like every three to five years, the whole country changes in terms of like the way people speak, the way they dress, in terms of a culture. It, it's rapidly evolving, and it's it's very unfortunate because I have a, I have a cousin that I'm relatively close with that's still in Esfahan, and and he's telling me it, it's it's struggling. It's the people that are really struggling. They're doing what they can to make ends meet. But when you have a government that's completely mismanaged the whole country, it's like, what do you expect it to happen? Going back to the MASA Act, are there specific details in the legislative bill that can, I guess, maybe like what, what does it actually entail? Like, what is it like? I'm not saying for you to discuss a line by line, but in terms of its general essence, what how can it help? Iranians and how could it help the foreign relations between America and Iran? I mean, what does it actually do? So the MASA Act is a piece of legislation that calls to codify the sanctions on the Supreme Leader and the President of Iran and their offices for committing human rights abuses and supporting terrorism. So in practicality, what would change if this bill went into law would be the fact that these sanctions that are currently present on 
the Supreme Leader and the President would be legislative sanctions. They would no longer be based on executive order where an administration can decide to remove those sanctions. There would need to be congressional approval under the MASA Act. So that is something that is important because we saw when there was a desire to return to the JCPOA, something that the Biden administration considered was removing the executive order sanctions on the Supreme Leader and President of Iran. If we had something like the MASA Act in place, that would no longer be a an avenue that they could go down to remove those sanctions without any congressional oversight. The second component that is different is that they are being sanctioned for human rights abuses specifically. And that's something that has not, they have not been sanctioned for in the past. And the third thing that makes it very special and very important is the fact that the Iranian American community as a whole has rallied behind this legislation. Like I said, the Iranian American community has been very politically aloof, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because it really is a misfortune, especially given the fact that our community is very well educated. Our community is very wealthy and more than capable to engage in politics. But so far, we have had a void, like I said earlier, there on the Hill in Washington, D.C. So the fact that the community has really rallied behind this legislation to propel it forward has been something that's been very special and very important to me because I feel we're building the framework for future legislation and really shaping the Iran policy discussion and actually bringing the voice of the people of Iran here to the United States. And so I think that that's something that's very, very important for us. And we've learned how we can use our voices and the best avenues to go down to ultimately make our voices heard. So this, the Mass Act basically really does put a dent in the regime's, I guess, dealings and the way that they do things, right? Like they wouldn't be able to maneuver or do things the way that they are doing now. I would say that it would make a dent in the fact that it would make a very big statement if this mm -hmm. were implemented into law. It would make a statement that, hey, look, the Iranian American community can organize to rally behind something. Mm -hmm. And also it would show that us as Americans and our lawmakers are not going to stand for the human rights abuses mm -hmm. and the support for terrorism that they have committed. So ultimately, is it symbolic? It can be if you look at it from that perspective, but if you look at it from the opposite angle that, hey, look, this is a piece of legislation that is for the Iranian American people and led by the Iranian American people, then there's more, there's there's a lot of layers to it, if you mm -hmm. can see what I'm saying. But as far as like sanctions go, this is not like the be all and end all of Iran related sanctions. And then not to mention, I haven't mentioned this, but it's named after Masa Amini. So if we have United States law, that was something that was one of my driving factors in the beginning was I want her name to be United States law. Um, and so that was something that was really important to me because it's also it's also like emotionally significant for us as Iranians to recognize that her life was lost, but it was not in vain. Right. And we saw during the markup, it was done on the anniversary, the one year anniversary of her murder. Yeah, um, so a lot of these milestones and things like that, they've been on symbolic dates. They've been very special to a lot of us. And so I, I thank the lawmakers um, 
Congressman McCarthy, who brought this up for a House floor vote on the week of her murder. I think that that was very significant and it was very special for a lot of Iranian Americans. And we've seen so much support from Congressman Jim Banks, who introduced this bill, to Congressman Corey Mills, who led the amendment to retain the strength of the language of the bill, to Congressman McCall, who's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, who has just said, you know, some very, very wonderful and supportive things about the people of Iran and has supported us in this process to to like politically mobilize, I would say. So we've had some very, very special members of Congress who have really stood by our side. And I'll never forget all the support they've shown us along the way. That's great. Well, shout out to all those names that you just mentioned. Do you, by the way, just side note, for some reason, apparently I'm on like the free trial of Zoom. So it says I have five more minutes, but if it ends, I'll just re- redo, send you another link again. But I want to just use the last remaining minutes for this video real quick. Do you think, have you noticed and observed that the Massa, Massa Act has been mostly bipartisan or has it been leaning more towards Republicans, Democrats, like who's really like behind it? And do you think that's very telling of the current landscape of the political spectrum? It is. So we've seen that the current landscape of domestic politics in regards to Iran, it has been very hyper-partisan. We've seen on the left, Democrats have been historically known to want to sort of appease the regime in Iran and its leadership. And then we've seen the polar opposite on the right. And we saw that with the Massa Act as well. In the very beginning of our advocacy, the Republicans were very eager to join on as co-sponsors and to support. And in fact, all of the members of Congress that I just named were all Republicans. Mm-hmm. And we've not seen really that same support as far as things go on the Democratic side, unfortunately. But I always say this, and I wish that it were it would be, come to fruition at some point, would be to see a more, it shouldn't be a hyper-partisan issue. Iran policy should be a non-partisan issue. Everyone should agree that the regime in Iran commits human rights abuses. The regime in Iran abuses its people. The regime in Iran abuses the people of the entire Middle East. And so we should want to hold them accountable. That should not be a Republican ask or a Republican talking point. It should be a talking point amongst all lawmakers from every side of the aisle. But unfortunately, we've not seen that. And I think that specifically the JCPOA was kind of a deciding factor where it really split people that maybe were once in the middle to two opposite opposing viewpoints. And there is still a desire for many Democratic lawmakers to return to the JCPOA and to engage in negotiations with the regime, which ultimately I do not agree with as far as the negotiations we've seen, where it's just unlocking billions and billions and billions of dollars, because ultimately we know exactly where that money's going to go. Yeah, that's crazy. The Where is like... We have like two minutes left. But okay. the what, where is the Massa Act now? I mean, in terms of its status, is it pending? Is it on the floor of the Congress just waiting to be reviewed? It's 
in the Senate. It's on Senator Cardin's desk, and we are waiting for a markup. Unfortunately, we have not seen any movement since Senator Cardin has assumed the role of FRC chair. There has been no legislation that has passed through the Senate has, you know, gone for a markup. And so we're in this like Senate purgatory where we really need Senator Cardin to pay attention and to mark this up and to see it progress in the in the Senate the same way that it did in the House. But unfortunately, we are in that waiting period. Okay. So we have to wine and dine him, basically. <laughs> we gotta wine and dine him. Wine and dine him. The good news is, is that we do have seven Senate co-sponsors. It's four Democrats and three Republicans. So again, we're seeing that good bipartisan split, which is also interesting, given the fact that historically we've seen what I mentioned earlier. But when when it comes to the Massa Act, we've seen some good bipartisanship. And that's something that I hope to see going forward in Iran legislation. Yeah, I mean, 44 years. I mean, I think the regime has done I mean, giving the devil its due, they've played a, a remarkable chess move on the American land of the landscape of American politics. I mean, they played them like a fiddle. And it's almost like the American politicians are kind of backed up into a corner. They don't know what to do because good people, it's hard for the good people to kind of rise up because the regime is really good at knocking them down. So it's almost like they're held hostage. Yeah. In a weird way, because they have the oil, they have the power, the, geopolitically, they're closer to Russia. It's uh, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. So that's the whole point of this conversation is to kind of deconstruct and unpack all the layers of complexity into a healthy form. Yeah. So I think a lot of times we can feel that our voices are really inco- inconsequential and insignificant. But I have a best friend who's also a human rights advocate for Iran. And she tweeted to Elon Musk, I believe on Friday. And guess who responded to her today? It was Elon, Elon Musk. That's and so cool. you think like, and these are not coming from voices that have like hundreds of thousands or millions of followers. These are average everyday advocates, just like you and I, who are in college, we work, we have regular lives outside of this. There's no difference between all of us and lawmakers and important people inside of this world. And I think that that's something that Iranian Americans really need to realize. And we need to make our voices heard. And I think Twitter is a great avenue of doing so. A lot of these X, (laughs) X, (laughs) a lot of these important voices are on X and there's lawmakers, there's uh, really important figures, they're celebrities, and these are all the people that we really want to get the ears up to spread the awareness about what's going on inside of Iran. And uh, it's a great way to ultimately make your voice heard. Instagram is great, but I feel that if you really want to target lawmakers and uh, political, like key political figures, you really got to move over to Twitter, which is where I have seen a lot of this political discourse that we've been having. That's where I spend most of my time. And I really encourage people to get out there and get on Twitter. So yeah, I got I I I I'm I want to make the move from Instagram to X because I I the reason I, I I was one of the earliest users of Instagram and I loved it because I was a photographer. It was cleaner than Facebook. It was less words. And now it's nothing but words and ads every three stories i swipe on it's there's th- at least two or three ads now so i like that about 
about what Elon did on Twitter. And uh, he wanted to go a more hardcore direction. He's like a tough guy. And I, and I like that. Yeah. I'm of an older generation. Not that older, but you know, like, I like, it's gotta be like a little, a little rugged. Uh, so yeah, you were, you recently attended the Nifty conference, which is again, what does it stand for? <laughs> National Union for Democracy in Iran. Okay. Now is that organized? Is that a nonprofit? Yes, it's a nonprofit. All right. So I can like, just like the way that it's presented to me, I associate that as like the, the an, an opposite end of NIAC. It seems like they're like a NIAC, but they do, they're on like the right side of history, at least from what it seems like. So I don't know much about it, but this is, that's just the way that I interpret them to be. They seem like they're doing a pretty good job. So feel free to tell me about the conference that you attended over there. Sure. So NUFTI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization aiming to bring the voice of Iranian Americans to Washington, D.C., ultimately to mobilize our community and to provide, like I said earlier, a void where it was once occupied and dominated by the likes of regime apologists now have everyday Iranian Americans making their voices heard. And it's really ultimately, I can say, uh, for myself speaking, uh, thanks to Nufti, they really did empower me to really get going on this legislative journey. And they held my hand every step of the way. Uh, a lot of the resources that I need, the expertise that I needed, they really, really empowered me. And I can't thank them enough for what they have done for not only me, but for our community. It's been very, very uh, monumental and very rewarding. And so I had the pleasure and the honor of being a panelist at their Iran conference that just passed last month in October. And I got to speak on the role of technology has shaped the Iranian revolutionary uprising, specifically with the youth inside of Iran, and then also us as Iranian American first and second generation activists. So I got to elaborate and to touch on that and to have a conversation about how we have ultimately used technology to not only mobilize within the country inside of Iran, but also outside of the country in here in America. Yeah, it's almost like this war. I mean, it really is a war uh, that's on multiple fronts. You got the cyber front and then you got the psychological front, which I associate with the religious front, too. So religious psychological cyber so it's uh, very complex what what you mind uh, sharing some talking points of what you had discussed on, on the panelists in terms sure. of technology and how yeah yeah so i i talked mostly about how politics it's not something that i was ever really interested or involved in and i think that's something i spoke about with you earlier as well is that Human rights is what really got me involved in the revolutionary uprising in Iran. And that's what really called me to be a voice. It's not because I love politics or I love talking to lawmakers or I like spending a lot of my time in D.C. It has become a source of enjoyment for me, but it wasn't my daily life prior to what happened in Iran in September of 2022. I lived a very normal, regular life. I, you know, had gone to college, I was working, I was doing normal things that a 24-year-old does. And then when the revolution began, I got to see for the very first time 
the women, especially the women of Iran, and I say women, but really they were teenagers and they were, you Younger, know, yeah, very young. Yeah. Kids inside of Iran, ultimately. And I got to see for the first time, I'm very young, but I still remember a time when it was common practice to use calling cards to call back home inside of Iran. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't a whole lot of communication. And so we felt as, or I can say I felt as a member of the diaspora, very far removed from the situation inside of Iran. And that changed in 2022 when we were able to get a really good look of, you know, the people inside of Iran and their lives. And we got to see not only Massa, we got to see Nika. They got to yeah. see all of those uh, Adis, young Nadrafi, people. Kian, Pierre Falak. Yeah, like yeah. All these their names still haunt me to this day. It's really sad. I know. I, I can hear their voices. I can hear. I still remember. And oftentimes when I'm speaking about them uh, to my audience or writing a tweet or something like that about them, I know know all of their stories by heart. It does, I don't even have to Google them because that's how connected I felt to those voices and to those stories. And I feel that that was the very, very first time that I got to experience that as someone in the diaspora. I got to see those kids. And then on the reverse, we heard people inside of Iran talking about, hey, look, like we're getting to see what it's like outside of this, what what the teenagers in Los Angeles get to live like, what the teenagers in New York City get to live like. And so why is our life so different than theirs? And I think that both on the outside, like from my perspective, and then also from the inside, that really has shaped the landscape of what is currently happening inside of Iran that we are seeing from the outside what the people of Iran are having to experience day in and day out. And then on the reverse of that, the people inside of Iran are seeing that we get to live very, um, very comfortable lives in comparison to what they have to experience. And I know that like my Instagram, I've looked at my analytics recently and the biggest city that I have uh, users consuming my content from is from inside of Iran. Tehran yeah, specifically. Too. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and those they're so interested in our lives because it's yeah. so different than what they get to see and what they get to experience. And it's really unfortunate, but it also shows it gives them something to look to and say, hey, look, you know, this is the alternative. This is what life is like inside of a democracy. And so I think that these young kids are seeing for the very first time, like we could have that ultimately. And so it's really shaped how all of us are interacting, not only with one another, but also sharing this information that we're being able to see for the very first time. So it's been a very interesting journey. But, you know, I think that the power of social media has really shaped the current situation inside of Iran and going forward, what the future is going to look like technology has played a huge role in that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely changed our world significantly. I mean, I was born 84, so I've seen the transition. I'm older than Google. <laughs> <It's> that, <laughs> I've seen I've seen the transition from the, the arcade Pong, the, the Nintendo's Duck Hunt, all the way to the cell phone that we have now and we all take for granted. We would I don't think we would have the the what do they call it? Like uh civilian journalism right is where like yeah where people on the ground are showing stuff but yeah it's 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 crazy i'm i'm curious um, did 
Is there any collaboration between Amnesty International and NIFTI at all? Because I know Amnesty has been very advocate, very active in posting about Iran during that time. I was just curious, is there like a link or is there a possible collaboration or should they based on your observation? What do you what do you think? I think Amnesty, we all are kind of working independently mm-hmm. is ultimately what I've seen. Um, I would love to see more collaborations, especially amongst Iranian-American activists, whether it's activists or organizations collaborating with you know, some of these bigger voices. But uh, ultimately, I've seen it's basically come down to an individual level of people right. stepping in and saying, hey, look, I want to make a difference. So this is what I'm going to do to make that difference. So I've seen the most change on an individual level versus... Um, from like these bigger organizations like Amnesty International or, you know, the United Nations, which is just like a complete. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, They've proven to really just become a world stage. It's really political theater when what they're doing over there. And it's really unfortunate. It's really, really unfortunate. Um, Yeah. That's what, I mean, that goes back to the conversation that we were, this sounds so weird. The conversation we were having with Elon Musk earlier was that he cited a United Nations rule as to why the Supreme Leader of Iran cannot be removed from X. And here I am thinking like, oh my gosh, this is a genocidal maniac who has not abided by the UN Charter since 1979, and we're citing United Nations rules to advocate to keep him on a platform where he's calling for the death of not only Iranians, but also for Americans and Israelis as well. I just, I just, there's a lot. Yeah. It's a very difficult pill to swallow. I mean, it just, it makes you wonder. I mean, Iranians in general, our culture, I always say this, we're very flawed as a culture and you could take your pick out of what what you want, but I think we're very superstitious as a culture. We, we tend to doubt a lot of things and there's always like that looming air of like a conspiracy theory, like someone else is pulling strings but I'm all, I'm of the belief that, yeah, I don't believe in that stuff. I believe everyone has their own responsibilities. You make your own life. And there's probably some not thinking, oh, who's paying him to be on board? Nobody. Like, this is all my stuff. This is my little makeshift studio. I work a nine, work, have my own entrepreneurial business and create content. That's what I do. I lean into it. So, but I've been uh, very fortunate in the, over the past year, uh, collaborating with these certain protesters, these groups, and from different parts, you know, like from New York to DC, down to the organization in, in Florida. But the uh, very difficult handling the different personalities of of that. Because Iranians, we can be very uh, very set in our ways, I guess. I guess where I'm going with this is that do you do you foresee Nufti being uh, like a lasting organization that can really like bring real change in changing what's going on? Or do you see it being almost like a knee-jerk response to everything that's happening and almost serving as like the antithesis of NIAC? No, I definitely see UFTI being a solid solution to what we've been lacking in Washington, D.C. And I have, you know, the fragmentation that is present within our community. We have 
voices from every single angle that all represent something different. And it's not always in the best interest of the Iranian people. But I think that the majority, if we get together and we really sit down and listen to what each of us wants and what we're advocating for, we have a lot more alike than we have different. And that was something that was really important for our Massa Act advocacy was that we looked at the things that we shared in common and we harnessed those things and we use utilize them as tools to really propel the advocacy. We said, okay, hey, look, this person's a good public speaker. So they can, you know, handle media, things like that. This person is good at finding like Iran policy tweets. They're very tech- technologically advanced or capable. So we're going to focus them on doing that. And then we have People are, you know, very organized, so they can handle the organizational side of things. There's a lot of people that are very good at different things within our community. We're a very talented community. So I think if we focus, yeah, yeah, I think if we focus on a lot of those things that bring us together and that are assets, as opposed to the things that are different, that is what's ultimately going to make us successful. And that's what we've seen with the mass advocacy framework is that people that are, you know, willing to put those differences aside and strive for something greater than themselves. That's where we've been able to make the most difference. So I think that this is like a learning curve for our community as a whole, where we've had to put aside a lot of those differences, that individual, the individuality that I think is it's an asset, but as with that being said, it can also be it can also be a bit of a curse that we've all been so individually successful. So to you know have to work as a collective, it's been a little bit hard. But those growing pains, I think, uh, something that we can all work out, and ultimately, I think it can be a tool to propel us forward in our next steps in whatever that is, whether it's legislative, whether it's whatever the community ultimately wants to undertake as next steps for the ongoing revolution. Yeah. You, yeah. So my God, I'm thinking about so many different things <laughs> now, but I know we're, we're pressed for time. Uh, maybe I'll get you back on another time. Maybe we'll, you know, see the progress of these uh, progress as well as yours with mass act and is there anything outside of the mass act that you uh, are that you're ambitious and hopeful for i'm really ambitious and hopeful just to see the community politically mobilize Uh, aside from the mass act i think that raising our voices and working together to be heard as a collective is very empowering. And it's something that uh, we have to do a lot more of. We're just like here on like that, those very baby steps. And the Massa Act was like a stepping stone for us to get our feet wet. And I really feel that going forward, we have the tools and we have the network of people to create something bigger to make our voices heard. So I am hopeful for that. I'm also hopeful um, for, you know, the people inside of Iran. I think that they have a very hopeful future uh, if we can just get rid of the current regime. I think that that's going to take a lot of work from both the outside and also the inside. And I think that we were getting closer. I think that there's some people that feel really, uh, really hopeless. But I encourage everyone, if you're listening not to, not to feel hopeless. We are just getting started. And I think that you can't count out the youth of Iran inside of Iran 
or outside of Iran. And I think ultimately we're going to be the ones that make that difference and make the change. That's uh, very well, very well said. The, uh, I, I really appreciate the optimism. I know uh, just for myself, there's been moments where I just felt like the light at the end of the tunnel was getting dimmer and dimmer just based off a not so recent collaboration I had almost like, what are you doing? Like I'm collaborating with you and yet I'm being put down. It's like, this is how you want to put our people up. It's just, it was very weird, but, but it's nice to hear you say that. I promise. And yeah. I'm not being blindly optimistic. I'm, I'm being truthful when I say ultimately light will overcome darkness. I truly believe it. Yeah, I believe it. I believe that too. I have my days, but I do yeah. believe that too. Uh, one question that I, I thought about uh, this fact finding mission at Nazani Noor, and I believe it, like three other women celebrities or like advocating that got passed in the UN. Has there been any talks about that at the Nifty conference? Like what's the status with that? Like, it was nice that they were able to mobilize and get something done, but there was like no follow through. Like, yeah, unfortunately I'm not, I, I was, I watched that progress and I saw that, you know, our community had mobilized to get over like a million signatures. Yeah. Which was um, great, by the way, it was huge. Yeah. It's almost like what happened now? Like who's really going out there? Like what's going on? I don't know. And I think back, honestly, I was uh, this this month in specific is like a really big month for a lot of the brutality that took place inside of Iran in 2022. November of 2022 was just a very, very dark place for a lot of us. And I look back and I was looking through my camera roll and I was seeing that, you know, there was like a lot of talk that that the executions were a rumor and that they weren't happening. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think back and I think like, oh my gosh, like if the fact finding mission does exist. Wouldn't this be a perfect time for when the executions have been surging just this year alone, 600 Iranians have been executed inside of Iran. And I think since the terrorist attack on Israel on October 7th, I think that it's 114, if I'm not mistaken, that have been executed. And so where are the voices that claimed or said that they were going to step up and were going to advocate for the people of Iran? I feel like we've been completely drowned out and lost ultimately. And so, you know, it's really unfortunate. Do you think this, I mean, it's, it's not a secret that the IRGC and the government support Hamas financially. Um, who knows? In other ways, they must support them. With the world's eyes on Israel-Palestine, how do you think this affects Iran from I guess this perspective of being on the American side, it's, I feel like, I mean, this is just my opinion. I feel like as an Iranian, it puts us in a very awkward position because our culture is so rich with Judaism, with Islam and other, and, you know, a myriad of religions. I almost feel like whenever, when the world's eyes are averted from Iran, this is where the atrocities happen the most. I mean, we see it, obviously, but if I'm an evil dictator, if everyone's looking that way, I get right. to execute all these people that I wanted to get out of my hit list. So right. this has been my fear. And I just was wondering what you thought about Israel-Palestine conflict as a general and how does that integrate with or, or influence the U.S. policy and you know, bridging the gap between America and Iran? 
Oh my gosh. Well, I could talk about heavy this. question. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's a heavy, heavy <laughs> question, but I mean, you could try could your best to answer. I'm just yeah. curious to just get your perspective. I could sit down for like two, three, four, five hours talking about just this conflict alone, but maybe, um, maybe, maybe when we have the live podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, in short, I will say that the people of Iran have been panting since 2009, no Gaza, no Lebanon, I sacrificed my life for Iran. So inside of Iran, I think that there is an obvious divide between the leadership and the people. The people are tired of the resources and the wealth of the nation being diverted to use to fund uh, terrorist activities, not only by Hamas, but Hezbollah and all of the other terroristic entities have ultimately been empowered by the regime while the people of Iran are suffering. So it's not surprising to me to see continuation of those chants and of the people of Iran really turning their backs on anything that the regime supports. And I think we've also seen that shift in the diaspora. I see a lot of the diaspora turning to support the Israeli cause and the people of Israel, because I feel over the past year, that's who we've seen the most support from. I can speak on a personal basis and say that much of the support that I have received has been from people of Israel and Jews. And I feel that we have a very special connection. And I've seen that, you know, over the past month since a regime in Iran launched basically a proxy terror attack on Israel via Hamas, I think that the Iranian community and the Israeli community has ultimately become stronger and the bond amongst us has become closer. And I see it all the time. I get to talk to people inside of Israel and they, they are so thankful for the support of the people of Iran. And so I find that very interesting because I feel that the regime has taught the people of Iran and Iranians that we're supposed to hate Israel. We're supposed to, they're the devil. They're the bad guys. America is the bad guy. America is the terrorist. Israel's a terrorist. Yeah. Right. From their perspective, and, we're the enemy. Yeah. Right. And you've seen, or I've seen that you know, people inside of Iran and the Iranian diaspora has completely rejected that completely and like fully rejected that. And so it's been very interesting to try to navigate that. But then, like you said, when the world is focused on Israel or Gaza, it turns the, you know, it takes a spotlight off of the people inside of Iran and they're getting executed. They're being tormented in the streets. I've seen they've recently re-upped the, the, hijab enforcement. And so I've seen from women inside of Iran saying that they're scared to even leave their apartments. They can't leave their apartments, that they're really, really, really struggling. And no one is talking about those stories. And so that's why I feel now more than ever, I know that a lot of Iranians are very, like you said, discouraged and a lot have stopped speaking out. But this is the time when we really could use those voices to come back and to join in and be a voice for those inside of Iran, because our community outside of Iran is pretty small. And so we really need all hands on deck to be their voices when, you know, it's lacking media attention, it's lacking attention from celebrities, it's lacking attention from a lot of people. 
But on the flip side of that, we're also seeing from lawmakers when I was in Washington, D.C. last month, it was very shortly after the Hamas terror attack on Israel. And there was like a renewed interest in Iran policy and wanting to hold the regime accountable. And it was the first time I felt that I had been to Washington, D.C. over the past year where there was actually an interest in Iran policy. And being the first to introduce certain legislation and to refreeze the $6 billion, there was a lot of talk, a lot of insightful discussions that we were able to have that we were not able to have prior. So it's been, that's why I say I could talk about this for like, probably like five hours and like really lay everything out because from start to finish, it's it's a very complex question and I have a very complex answer to it. But ultimately, it's changed a lot. For us as Iranians and for you know, the politically, everything has changed a lot in just the past like one month alone because of the terrorist attack, obviously sponsored by Iran on Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Heavy stuff. Very heavy stuff. When are you next going to D.C.? I'm trying to stay put in Dallas for okay. um, the rest of the year, at least. And okay. then I hope come 2024 i'll be boots on the ground again back in washington dc ready to advocate i just don't have any specific dates but um anyone that wants to keep up you can find me on all social platforms just raviani and i update like all of my travels and my experiences i try to do my best to make sure it's all documented yeah i mean i'm in new york so dc is a short it's like a six hour ride so i'll be in touch obviously we're in touch and you I'll bring the camera, we'll set it up and we could actually have a sit down. We'll have a discussion and we could really unpack this because I'm learning as this stuff too. I mean, like I know it's just interesting how much has changed, but like back in my generation, which wasn't that far ago, it was, it almost seemed very inappropriate for us as kids to speak back against the parents. Mm-hmm. We have that in our culture and it's it, it gets to a point where it's like, all right, kid, be quiet. What do you like? The adults are speaking. We we know better, but our gener our parents' generation really messed that messed it up. And even they say it, they admit it. And yeah. I think it it took some time for them to realize, wow, things are never going to change. Uh, it's forty four years is a long time. Yeah, you know, put a lot of pressure on our on our families. Like we all share that shared suffering. Yeah. But, Nobody has a monopoly on that. Everybody's suffering is unique in their own way and everyone has a right to feel it. But to say that mine's more than yours, therefore I'm entitled to better treatment or you know, entitled to dictate terms, this is where we need to have more diplomacy, better negotiation, and knowing that, all right, there is a red line, don't cross it. Um, yeah, no, I'm very interested. So I'll actually be following and I'll tag you and plug you in. Uh, again, the, the timer went off right now. So we got like five, okay. five more minutes. You see it, right? Well, actually, I wanted to just ask this one. I kind of en- ended on this one note. So you met, you had the privilege and pleasure of meeting the royal family, mm-hmm. Reza Pahlavi, and you met his beautiful wife. How were they like in person? I mean... My like, my family loves them. So I'm just 
you know, I was just curious, very interested to talk to you and kind of just see what they were like in person. Well, they are wonderful. And let me just say they exceed Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi and Princess Yasmin just exceed all expectations. They are the most caring, wonderful, attentive individuals that I have ever met. And you say don't meet your idols because they're going to let you down. Goodness, no. They are just incredible. Their family is beautiful. They are so kind and so empowering. And they just ultimately want to help the people of Iran. It really just comes down to that. That's really all they want to see is to see the people of Iran flourish under leadership that uh, empowers the people. And I, at the Nufti conference, uh, Princess was there the whole day in and day out. They're long days. The panels are long and they're tiring. And she was sitting there taking notes diligently and listening and wanted to hear what everyone had to say. And I think that those are just some, like super admirable qualities in leadership that we so desperately need because the current regime that we have just absolutely does not. They are the complete opposite of what we see from path of the family so they're they're absolutely incredible though they seem like really nice and genuine people and i just don't understand the propaganda against the family i just don't understand it i mean anyone with half of half a brain half a heart or a shred of common sense can see them for who they really are so they seem like really genuine people i hope uh, life uh, grants me the opportunity to meet them at some point so but it's really really cool that you got to meet them so i just wanted to kind of get your input on that they're beautiful wonderful family cool cool well is there anything else you wanted to say we got three more minutes so there's anything uh, to plug in I want to say, keep calling your representatives, call your senators and ask them to co-sponsor the MASA Act 2626. And please keep pressuring uh, Senator Cardin to mark up this legislation. Your voice is more important than, than you and we could use all of your help. So that's all I wanted to end on. All right. I'll be sure to post that, retag it and all that good stuff. All right. Well, Sada, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again in D.C. in a few months yes. after the holidays. Enjoy yes. it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Have a good night. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.